0: Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Reynir Indal here with me. Welcome to my podcast, Reynir.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Uh, Reiner Indahl is the founder and managing partner of Summa Equity, the newly formed Nordic private equity. It invests in companies that benefit from strong megatrends, such as global population growth, resource scarcity, aging demographics, movement of people, energy efficiency and technology disruption. And over the past year, some nine companies have already been invested in. Previously, Rainer has been with Altar Equity Partners, and prior to that, he was CEO of a technology company and also a consultant with McKinsey. So, Rainer, let's kick off with one question about your past. You've been in the private equity business since 2003 when you joined Altar. What are your major lessons from there?
1: (laughs) Well, I I do think that uh, the private equity type of ownership it's a very good type of ownership. When you work quite closely with companies and uh, you're a majority owner, it makes everyone focus on what's important. So, you know, having this alignment between the, bo- uh, the owner, the board, and the management, setting clear expectations and targets, and uh, working closely together to uh, achieve those targets and, and goals. So I do think it's a very, it's a very good and efficient way of, uh, of uh, operating a company.
0: So, what is the purpose of Summa Equity?
1: Well, purpose is really what's what's the reason for existence. So, what's the reason why Summa exists? Well, we do have some fundamental challenges, and if you look at where the world is heading, we do have uh, we do have some issues. So, the thinking behind Summa was really how can we invest in companies that uh, outperform because they are a solution. these problems. I mean, every problem leads to an opportunity. So where we see the opportunity and where we can play a role and how uh, Summa can can add something positive to it is that we invest in companies that uh, are solving some of these challenges. We do think they will grow and outperform due to it. And that will lead our investors in Summa to get uh, very strong long-term returns because they are, uh, through us, investing in, in the companies that, have, that are more future-proof. So it's really to be part of the solution and investing uh, resources behind those companies that are uh, part of the solution.
0: But tell me, where does um, the name Suma Equity come from?
1: <laughs> it was a lengthy process. We had a few names uh, up there. and um, I mean, all names mean something, right? But you also want to fill that name with what you believe in. So you can't have a name that confines you too much, because you should be able to fill it with something. Uh, and SUMMA is uh, it's Latin for, for thesis. So when you publish your, your PhD in the old days, it had to start with SUMMA and then something. So it's really about you know your thesis. Mm. And then you can, uh, the second derivative of sum is uh, summa is, is uh, the totality of things. It's the sum of things, right? So it's a totality. And then you can go into the word equity. And uh, if you research that, you know, it became apparent to me that that also have a few other connotations. So equity means equality, justice, fairness. Yeah. That's also values that we believe in. Yeah. So if you put all this together, it's really, what's our thesis for creating equity and fairness for everyone, the totality, Mm. not only for yourself. So that's maybe how I would sum it up. (laughs) The summa summarum. (laughs)
0: Beautiful. But what would you say, you know, to people who still, and for very good reasons, I guess, also are distrusting the financial sector due to very often its lack of moral compass and so on. I mean, you you are in the financial sector. (laughs) Uh, Yeah.
1: Well, it's, it's a difficult question. It's, uh, the financial sector is a very broad sector because you have many type of actors and players in it. So, you know, asset managers, a hedge fund, private equity. But private equity is, is really an owner of companies uh, working quite uh, closely with them. Uh, you have investment banks, you have banks. They're, I mean, it's a pretty wide sector. So I do understand why there's reason for distrust. An essential economy is about producing something, selling it to someone, having services. And that's what makes uh, the world go around and we all get our products and services that we need. And the financial industry is an intermediary in that cycle or in that value chain. So making sure that you know we can pay for those goods and services and that the, the system works. So if you look over over the last 30, 40 years, and probably one of the reasons behind the financial crisis is that the sector has become too large for the economy. And there's many reasons for that. And if you look at how much of the profit globally goes to the financial sector, there's reason to to say that, you know, it's a disproportionate size of the economy compared to the role that it should have. So uh, it's a bit like, you know, is the oil, uh, some questioning, is the oil in the machinery really becoming so much oil that is drowning the machinery? Uh, mm. So I, I, I do understand uh, uh, the question and I, I understand that there is some distrust um, around the financial sector, but I, I do think you have to look at what part of the financial sector we, we're talking about. Mm. That was a long answer and I'm not probably finished with it yet because um, I mean, the the fundamental thesis of capitalism is based on Adam Smith and the invisible hand. And if everyone follows their own self-interest, then everything, uh, the invisible hand will make sure that everything goes well. So Adam Smith is uh, grossly misquoted in that. And and his view is really that you do have to care for someone else, not only your self-interest. And uh, if you look at sort of, there's over seven Nobel Prize winners in, in economics who um, have studied game theory, which basically concludes that you have to find the win-wins. And uh, in the financial sector, I do think there's that win-win thinking. That's not the primary driving force. Mm. If you look at companies, I mean, we own companies. Companies is really the, uh, are the, the cornerstone in society in many ways. And then you can, you know, have you been too focused on shareholder value? Maybe. But there are changes happening now where, you know, where where you really have to think more about what's the role and what's the purpose that you asked me about? What's the purpose of Summa? I think all companies, all actors, all players, including in the financial sector, have to think through these questions. Mm. So if you are going to rebuild trust, you have to figure out how are you really useful to society. How do you have an important role that everyone sees as beneficial? So uh, if the financial uh, industry is losing its trust from society, then uh, the model will probably be changed.
0: Sooner or later, yeah. So
1: it is sort of in your self-interest to make sure that you're actually beneficial to someone else. (laughs)
0: But what did you think and feel when this financial crisis hit and you were sitting at Alter at that time? What was going through your mind then?
1: Well, first of all, I was quite disappointed with myself because uh, I didn't see it coming. And I went back into my uh, my economics books. Uh, I mean, I did my master's at Harvard and undergrad at Wharton. So those textbooks are, are the sort of leading textbooks. <laughs> um, and you don't really see in those textbooks that it was even possible for the financial crisis to come. Uh, I remember sitting there in two thousand and seven, working with the strategy and, um, and the performance of our companies in out in to that point. And I didn't see any clouds in, in the sky that sort of made me worried. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, I was very disappointed with myself uh, that uh, I didn't see it coming, and that made me really start to dig d- dig into. Why was it coming? And it wasn't that easy to, to figure out at first. But there were plenty of people who actually did warn about it coming. So mm. it's obvious that our theories and models weren't quite appropriate. And at the same time, uh, we, um, there was also a big discussion on uh, whether you know, climate change was happening, was it man-made or not, as well as inequality. And Thomas Piketty came out with his book, and uh, Joseph Stiglitz uh, talked a lot about the inequality problem. So starting to look into all of this uh, became a little bit worried about where we, were, where we were heading. So the financial crisis was really a, a turning point for me because I didn't see it coming. And then when I understood more of why it came, uh, I also became worried uh, whether we are solving it in the right way. And uh, is it gone forever or will we hit another one? Yeah.
0: Yeah. But at that point, did you think oh my God, uh, what we are doing here in the private equity business and elsewhere, we are more part of the problem than the solution. Did you think that?
1: Well, the answer to that is yes. So, um, I mean, we use the term future-proof. So we want to buy companies that are future-proof.
0: Mm.
1: So my worry became really that, you know, if you don't understand how these trends are changing, what the problems are, what kind of forces are at, uh, at work, you know, do you invest in the right companies? So yes, in one way, you are part of the problem if you invest in the, the companies that are not aligned uh, with, uh, with these trends. And you're part of the solution if you, if you invest in companies uh, that are actually more future-proof also, because they, they are adding positively to the challenges that we have.
0: What do you think, how will the financial sector look like in, let's say, four or five years from now?
1: There is a change happening more and more companies, more and more uh, players in the financial sector care about what they call responsible investing, behaving responsibly, making sure that you cater to a changing mindset uh, in uh, among your consumers among your business partners mm-hmm. so i um I do think it's moving in the right direction five years, probably a too short time frame to uh, to see a big change. Mm-hmm.
0: But do you think there will be, I mean, now we're kind of speculating, I know, but I'm thinking about, you know, new business models coming in completely, changing the function of a classic bank, uh, or...
1: The broader question is, you know, will the financial system as such change a lot and mm. how it operates, but uh, I think disruption will be massive. Um, and I think the disruptors mm. will also think more in a, in a fashion where their model is more beneficial to society. Than the current model, so I think it's the combination of technology and purpose, and their in intrinsic business model that uh, that will cause them to disrupt.
0: Sounds as a healthy development. Absolutely, yeah. I think always disruption is healthy. <laughs> Was it scary to uh, kick up something uh, new, you know, a new company, which is uh, I mean, it is based on private equity model that what you're doing at Summa, but it's still really elevating that model.
1: I wasn't sure it was going to succeed. So I started on this journey because we were pretty much uh, at least one of the first who is uh, setting it up and and thinking in this uh, fashion. So we're doing a lot of new, novel, uh, innovative um, things. And I didn't know whether investors uh, would, um, would buy into it. I didn't know. Well, I thought, you know, we use enough of, of best practice uh, thinking from, from the firms we've been with and, and from the private equity industry to believe that we would actually create superior return. But uh, this whole thematic approach, how we focus on, on future-proof companies, uh, how we work with ESG or environmental, social and governance uh, issues, uh, mm-hmm. is quite novel in the Nordic. So I was open to the fact that it might not succeed, but it didn't really threaten me because for me, it was really important that this is what I wanted to do. Mm. Business as usual, in in call it a little bit more of the old fashioned way, was not an option for me. Uh, Had enough of other options to do other things. Uh, So if if this failed, that was also okay for me. Mm. So it wasn't scary, Mm. but uh, I wasn't sure that this was going to succeed. Mm.
0: But it's interesting that you say that um, a lot of people I've been talking to, and also from my own experience, that when you go into something and you're so convinced about it and you want to try it out because you believe in it so Hmm. badly, then you're okay with whatever happens, which means that you're going to be somehow fully focused and present in what you're doing much more than be be run by some kind of you know, fearful thoughts or whatever. That's exactly lose, right. You don't lose energy on that. And no. the organization that you built is not losing energy on that either. Yeah. And that's a competitive edge, incredible, uh, actually competitive edge when kicking off anything new.
1: Hmm. That's a good way of putting it.
0: What kind of companies are you looking for? I mean, apart from that they should have a strong niche position in, in these sectors that we were mentioning uh, underlying uh, megatrends. Hmm. What is it that you're looking for?
1: We are looking for companies that we do think can, can outperform and succeed. But I think some of the factors we're looking at is probably different from uh, what others are looking for. Mm-hmm. I think everyone will say that, uh, you know, to have a, a good management team and the organization is very, very important. We are looking for something more than that. If you're looking into what makes an organization high performing mm-hmm. versus, um, you know, just mediocre, it's quite important that uh, an organization is purpose-driven. We're working very closely with Professor George Serafem at Harvard, who's done all the research on uh, purpose-driven companies. And he has a very good methodology when you look into what characterizes uh, a purpose-driven organization. So it's not all purpose-driven organizations, although they have a strong, uh, you know, something that's important to them. Uh, that's why they, the reason for existing mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean they're performing So... You have, to, you have to look more into what makes this organization tick, how does it work and function, and are they really high-performing or not. We spend more time than I've done in my past really trying to understand the, uh, how can this company succeed from an organizational standpoint. Mm-hmm. Strategy, operations, that part is, is fairly classic, looking at sort of what is the competitive advantage of this uh, company, how can it succeed, uh, how, uh, What does competition, how, what does the market look like a purpose-driven company is all about having a purpose where you do offer some advantages to either your customers your business partners or society in general mm-hmm. so it's really finding out how do you align that with your products and services and how we operate in the market so we're also more focused on how can you make that a competitive advantage and how can you outperform competitors who don't think in this fashion mm-hmm. so i i think there are uh, there are these nuances on uh, so while the topics and what we're saying is really very similar to what other private equity players will be saying, I do think we, we operate and work differently and focus a bit on, on a broader set of criteria mm. than the traditional ones.
0: Mm. And I'm also thinking the fact that you are focused on certain megatrends uh, makes you less the generalist and more specialized with yes. time, right? Yeah. So your knowledge or your expertise in uh Judging and and uh, cooperating later with the management to to make the business flourish will increase, I, I guess. Mm. But George Seraphim that you mentioned, the professor at Harvard, how does he define this successful purpose-driven company? You know, how how is he describing it according to all the research he's done?
1: They have to define the purpose. They have to understand how does their products and services influence uh, the various stakeholders. And how do you align what you have of assets and resources with uh, the products and services and and how they affect the the stakeholders and and how they align with the purpose of the company? So there's a methodology around it. And not all purpose-driven companies necessarily have thought this through. You know, you want to be in the education sector because you think it's fantastic to be in the education sector. But do you really think through how you operate and how uh, how, how you work uh, in order to fulfill, you know, what's really the purpose why you are in the education sector. Yeah. So, uh, and then you have to make sure, I mean, you have to make sure that your processes, whether it's on sales or on R&D, uh, that you're well managed and well led. That's about clarity and clarity uh, uh, and target setting also that needs to be aligned with your purpose. So. It is uh, what he called sort of non-performing high-purpose companies are what he called the camaraderie uh, purpose. So it's -hmm. it's an organization that is a little bit dysfunctional, but all all the people want to do the right thing, but it's not essentially uh, well-managed and directed. When you are able to align it, you are able to focus, and essentially using many of the traditional private equity tools to make a Mm -hmm. 100-day program, you know, following up, target setting, all of that, and you align that with the purpose. Then it, you really outperform. That's his, that's what his research shows. Mm. So we're adding this importance of purpose, and alignment and stakeholders in how we use our traditional private equity tools, mm. and that's you, how you make uh, more purpose high performing um, organizations.
0: Mm. And uh, in a way, that's what you call future proof companies. If they work like that, they are also future proof. Yes.
1: Um, I think uh, that's right. I mean, a lot of uh, the whole financial sector, I would say, have ESG high on the agenda. So environmental, social governance. What we are essentially saying is that the way most or many do it is not necessarily very value added because um, uh, I mean, look at Volkswagen, they had ESG in their annual report. Did they do the right things? Their share price would look quite different to today if they had used all the innovative power to align with their purpose mm. and using ESG as one of the purpose uh, tools rather than innovating how to cheat the system. So although you have the check-the-box approach to ESG and you, know, you say you focus on it, but it's not really lived and embedded in, the, in how the organization operates, mm. it doesn't lower risk and it doesn't make you more future-proof at all. Mm. So uh, it's the way you use ESG and embed it in your strategy in your organization that makes you more future-proof. So I do think if Volkswagen had then used all the innovative power in finding out how to how to have technology that lowered the emissions, mm. their share price would look very differently today, and the market share would look very differently today. Mm. So that's uh, that's how we think about future-proofing companies is to. Align the innovative process and the organization with a defined purpose. And if you look at our themes, whether that's energy or health or whatever, you know you can't be a healthcare company and make your patients uh, sicker. and uh, so the alignment between your purpose uh, should drive the financial performance, both revenues and um, and profits.
0: Do you feel a tough pressure to um, outperform? I mean, to really prove to the world that this is a better and new way to create value that you are developing right now in your business.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I do think we we have been uh, innovative. Uh, We are creating something new and something that we believe is better. And if the financial performance shows that uh, it was worse, then... uh, you know, we, we maybe we went down the wrong path. I don't think we have. I think the performance so far is very good and encouraging. But of course, that's what keeps me up at night, is making sure that we do deliver superior returns, that we do outperform. Mm. If not, uh, you know, either the model is wrong or we weren't good enough.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh... I hope really that, that you will succeed, because if you really outperform, it will be the proof in the pudding for other people to say, okay, it really works. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's not just this fluffy, purpose-driven, whatever thing that they're doing over there. Mm. It's something really creating tangible results on all levels. Yeah. So in that sense, uh, outperforming is, is um, like a passport. Is there anything that you would call like evidence after only about a year that, of your existence
1: so our model is essentially that we buy uh, uh, companies, uh, often in cooperation with previous owners or, or the management uh, team. We work with the companies to ha- make them grow and succeed over, uh, over a period of time, traditionally five to seven years. But, you know, it could be shorter, it could be longer. Uh, so we are still early. Uh, we, we're, we're only a little bit over a year year old. So we're still too early. Uh, we haven't sold any companies yet and delivered any returns back to our investors. But the portfolio is, uh, is performing uh, quite well. What has um, surprised me positively is our ability to acquire companies and achieve um, a preferred position in those acquisition processes. So the fact that we are purpose-driven we are looking for what we are looking for in, in companies and, uh, and our methodology of working with them resonates quite well with entrepreneurs, with family-owned companies. Uh, so um, most of our acquisitions have not been through the traditional auction process. It's been a one-to-one where either we have contacted the company or or, uh, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And we are preferred as, uh, as a new owner or a majority owner, which makes them abandon going in an auction process, inviting others in. So. Mm-hmm. It has really, uh, in that sense, uh, we have been very, very opportunity rich in acquiring companies. So, so, so far, I mean, uh, it's, uh, the model is working uh, better than I thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Great. What about competition? Would you like them to join Suma's Purpose and copy your formula?
1: Absolutely. I do think everyone will eventually go in the direction uh, we are. So um, we, we have been sharing our approach to ESG and how to embed that in our strategy and organizational work with, uh, with a couple of direct competitors. So um, the market is also big enough and you know, our focus areas are not the same as someone else's focus areas. Yes, we might, mm. we might look at the same company once in a while, but the market is, is very large. And, and I rather want to make sure that uh, private equity in general goes in this direction because I do think the private equity model is better than uh, some of the other ownership models, whether that is listed companies, which might be too short-term thinking and uh, don't have this clarity and sort of same purpose-driven approach. I would be very, very happy if all private equity uh, moved in, in this direction. And that, that made the private equity industry show that it is really a better, more future-proof model than some of our other ownership models.
0: One of the biggest uh, trust shifts in history is uh, happening right now, where you see trust and influence that lies more with individuals than they do with institutions. So, what is your take on that?
1: I, I do agree with that. I mean, I think the millennials, how they are focusing now on meaning and, and purpose and how they want to be part of the change on an individual level. Mm. I guess sort I'm of more optimistic that uh, a lot of people now that are starting to, you know, be the change you want. The more hierarchical old model of institutions telling people what to do. Well, obviously, it hasn't worked that well. If not, you wouldn't have Brexit. You wouldn't have mm. Trump being elected. I mean, the voters are getting a bit frustrated because our governance system isn't dealing with the issues uh, yeah. that we're seeing. So obviously, people are taking, uh, taking it into their own hands and uh, being on an individual level, the change you want. So if you want to improve the world environmentally, well, don't ask Greenpeace to do it. Just be the change. Mm-hmm. If you do care about uh, those that are falling out of society, well, go and do something about it, not uh, ask the government to uh, to fix it. Mm-hmm. So I do see a lot of those changes. I, I, I do think um, that will... Um, be a major part of, of the change that we are seeing and, and we'll see going forward.
0: Mm. And um, going back to you, Reiner, what's your passion actually?
1: Well, um, one is, uh, is, is to create something new and, and be innovative. Uh, we live in an agile world where uh, you have to be very open-minded. You have to, you have to be a bit forward-looking. And uh, that's why it's also bothered me why I didn't see the financial crisis coming. And that sort of changed, changed me, and it changed a bit of my passion, because into the passion then, uh, I mean, passion comes from the Latin word of, of suffering, right? Yeah. When I saw all the issues we have, both in the financial system with inequality, ecological and environmentally, then it's really how can I be part of the solution, not part of the problem? and then using the innovative creative forces in in trying to make something new. And that's very inspiring. Uh, That gives me a lot of energy and it gives me a lot of focus. So so that's why I embarked on the journey of SUMMA, not fearing or being scared of whether it fails or not. Mm -hmm. Just trying to think how can we we find something that will succeed, that will will outperform. Mm -hmm. The question was, Mark was more than is there someone more than me that believe in this? Mm. And yes, I created a great uh, team. Uh, we uh, raised our fund very quickly. We have a lot of very involved investors who are uh, who are uh, very excited about what we're doing and how we're doing it. Mm. So that's my passion making uh, uh, making sure that we now succeed in a new innovative way of uh, creating outperformance mm. by investing in uh, in the right companies.
0: And um, apart from the uh, financial crisis that you mentioned, that was one of your turning points, you could say, or transformational moments somehow, are there any other turning points in your life that have influenced you a lot? Maybe even when you were younger? <laughs> Sometimes it can happen, you know, you meet a certain person and who tells you a story or shares their experience or whatever, and it kind of opens the door to something new.
1: I do think I'm a quite open-minded person. And I also like to, and I would summa to be a bit uh, the way I've lived my life is that I'm a broker of ideas. So it's not like I am coming up with all these these great ideas and new stuff. I'm always borrowing from somewhere, stealing with pride. So there's been a lot of moments uh, throughout my journey which have been, which have changed the journey. So I went into this uh, one example, I went in as a CEO of a technology company. And that was uh, a few weeks before uh, the dot-com bust. So it's usually this crisis that, <laughs> that changes me a bit, right? And I was able to uh, to raise a uh, significant amount of capital, and it was an optical telecom company. And uh, when that crisis happened in, in uh, early 2000, then um, the company I was in and just had raised money for, were, uh, uh, that was one of the hardest places to be in the optical telecom space. So it also taught me that you have to be agile because uh, we were the only optical telecom company, uh, at least in the Nordic, that survived. And we went public in 2003 when I joined Altor. Uh, so we survived a crisis. But if you look at the business model and, uh, and what we were focusing on three years later, it was different from what, when I joined. So it, it taught me that you have to be very agile. The world changes, and the assumptions that you went into a situation with was not necessarily the right assumptions. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with that change of uh, of assumptions? So, um, so that maybe uh, being more open minded and learn more, and also question assumptions always. So I become, I also become more scenario based after that. Mm. So I do think, what are the different scenarios? And it's sometimes hard to put a probability, an accurate probability on those scenarios. But at least you know what that can happen. And that's how we work with our companies now as well. So I always ask our teams to make scenarios. And it's pretty traditional, you make a base case, upside case, downside case. But I want these cases to be event-driven and assumption-driven. So what assumptions can change and how will then uh, that play out?
0: If you you think about all kinds of companies and organizations out there, what, um, let's call it, long-term solution or formula do you believe in?
1: I do think it comes back to what we talked about earlier about creating win-win. So we have investors talk about the internal rate of return. What kind of financial return? Are we we buying a company, we're selling it, what what was the IRR, or uh, internal rate of return on that investment? What we are also working with is the external rate of return. Mm. So what return does society have outside our companies, our customers? So I do think um, what all companies have to figure out going forward is I don't think you can make an internal rate of return, uh, at least not that outperforms, if you don't also create external rate of return. So it's it's creating this Mm win-win And that's where also purpose comes into it, because you have to define your purpose in an ERR fashion. Look at what Paul Polman is doing with Unilever, and Unilever is outperforming compared to competitors. I mean, there's enough of research and examples showing that uh, this is really what you have to do to outperform and succeed going forward.
0: There are statistics from uh, lots of research companies measuring the engagement of people in companies, yeah. on average, wherever that's possible to measure, it's at most 20%. So. Mm. And that's incredibly low. Yeah. And, and I figure if more and more companies go into this, let's call it values-driven, purpose-driven mm. mode, that percentage should increase. So that would be an interesting uh, factor for you to maybe even measure if it's possible in your portfolio companies later to see yep. how does that uh, kind of engagement level mm. and that kind of culture that you build within those companies that you invest in.
1: Yeah, uh, we, we are focused on that. And we, we one of our portfolio companies, ClearSight, mm-hmm. and we are working with them to how do you measure engagement in our mm-hmm. companies and do it uh, with the latest technology and, and way to do it. So I completely agree. Mm-hmm. And also the difference in productivity between people that are motivated and are engaged compared to those that are not, you know, it's a factor of two to three, maybe higher. And um, if only 20% in your companies are uh, are engaged, it's a pretty big uh, lever of uh, of outperformance or underperformance. Mm. Mm. So uh, that's why it, it is quite important to, um, for us to, uh, to work on that.
0: How active are you actually with the, your companies so far in terms of recommending them what you believe in and try to kind of, you know, find the same wavelength together with the management of these uh, companies. Are are you and are you going to be pretty active in these uh, questions around how to shape and form organizations and all that?
1: So um, the answer to that is yes, but we also have to be cognizant of what kind of role we play in this because we don't go in and uh, we don't become the management of our companies. So you, uh, you really have to ensure that the management team, and that that trickles down all the way in the organization, that they truly believe in this and that they operate in the fashion that we would like them to operate. So what we do have, we have a methodology that we have worked together with uh, George Seraphim and a few other uh, uh, partners with. So we do have some minimum requirements. We do have a set of workshops. We have we ask the right questions, but it's really management that. So so we uh, we can't go in and define what's the purpose of your company, but we can ask them what is your purpose of uh, <laughs> of the company mm. and how do you drive uh, and We have a methodology for how you how you translate that into your strategy plan and operational plan. Mm. So we do have a set way of of working where we ask those questions, but it's really the management organization Mm. that have to come up with some of these answers. If not, um, it's not going to work. It's not going to work that we tell them Mm. what to do.
0: And if we uh, dream a little bit and say that you have, you know, all doors open out there and all resources available, what would you then innovate or change?
1: Well, if I would be really out of the box, I'm in the private equity industry. So if you look at how the traditional model in private equity is and how also Summa somewhat has set it up, it's a small group of quite bright people that, uh, you know, it's private equity. It's not transparent. You know, we're not in the newspapers a lot. It's, uh, it's a very confined model. But if you look at sort of, we live in a knowledge world now. So maybe we lived in a more manufacturing world 10 years ago and the predictive model is really from the 80s, 90s, and it hasn't changed that much. So I do think, um, if you want to think out of the box, I think our model doesn't work when it comes to, how do you make sure that you get the full engagement in companies, so not 20% but 100%? How do you then also, from, from our side, from the ownership, how do you get people involved that are the thought leaders globally? On, uh, we have a company called the e for example, which does energy efficiency, mm. smart algorithms, smart sensors, uh, cloud-based, and they reduce energy by 10 to 20% in, uh, in the buildings that they are. That is sort of artificial intelligence, it's Internet of Things, I mean, it's all the right buzzwords. Do they have access to the best people globally mm. in Internet of Things or, or algorithms or, or these things? It's a small company in Gothenburg with very bright people, but I'm sure, you know, that we can tap into resources that are levels above that globally. So it's more about uh, what what also Singularity University talks about exponential organizations. How how can the private equity industry become an exponential organization? Mm. How can we have a much more open, much more transparent model? How much more of a sharing model where uh, everyone that participates and contributes to the success of a company Mm Share in the benefit of that, it's not only a small partner group in a private equity fund that raised a lot of capital. Mm -hmm. I think that would be really interesting. How can you make a model where we are the broker of ideas, where we get the best minds in the world, uh, particularly suited to that set of circumstances that that company has in a way that engages the organization, so we go from 20% to 100% engaged employees. Mm -hmm. So I do think that that means we have to think in a radically different way.
0: If you could give one piece of advice to uh, leaders, however you, you know, define those, what would it be?
1: Agility is very important. I think the world is moving much faster than, uh, than we've seen before. People are changing. Organizations are changing. There is a much stronger need for purpose and meaning and engagement than it was five years ago or ten years ago leaders that don't you know that come from more of a hierarchical we make decisions at the top kind of approach uh, i'm the boss that needs to change so that would be my uh, my advice but i mean a lot of the, the CEOs that i'm exposed to in our companies are really on this path so i don't think it's it's not black and white to succeed as a ceo today you're already along that path mm. I recognize that also as a managing partner, both in my own organization and, and with our companies, is that I don't get all the information always about what people are thinking, what kind of questions they have, what kind of assumptions do they have about Summa or me. Mm. So uh, we do try to practice radical honesty in Summa. We try to practice that with our with our companies. I don't think it's, it's working 100%, but we try to be more transparent. We try to be more open, and we try to be more open-minded. And as a leader today, you need to move in that direction. I do see a lot of great, great CEOs who are moving in, in that direction quite rapidly.
0: If we elevate to the whole world as such, what do you think the world needs most at, at this time?
1: We haven't figured out the answers to our challenges yet. So uh, we've gone through a lot of different economic systems Uh, We have had a lot of different uh, governance systems. Democracy works in a very different way in in many different countries. I think the fundamental struggle is that we don't have one solution, one answer. Francis Fukuyama, a few years back, came out with a book, End of History. And that's how democratic capitalism was the perfect system, and that's going to outlive every other system. And then we do see challenges now among voters. We do see uh, issues, and he came out with a book which, uh, which has changed some of that paradigm a little bit later on. Um, but, so I, I think the fundamental issue in question is that we don't have one answer anymore, and we are a bit struggling for the answers. What the world needs are role models that do new innovative things, that do try to solve some of our uh, ways well, there's not only one answer, there's, there's quite a lot of answers. So I do think that's, that's what we need going forward is, uh, what we talked about a little bit earlier, institutions versus individuals. Be the change you want. Mm. And some will be uh, elevated to role models, finding some of these uh, new ways of, uh, of solving our, our issues in a better way.
0: Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Rainier. Thanks for uh, sharing. So Rainier, uh, how was it to be on the podcast?
1: Well, it was interesting because uh, you have some good questions. There's some broad and fundamental questions, which is not very easy to have answers on. Hmm. So um, uh, I'll probably wake up tomorrow and regret a few of my answers and thought that (laughs) I rather should have said this, uh, because those are very difficult questions where it's hard to have. Uh, a straightforward uh, easy answer Mm.
0: and that's how it should be I mean we all have our you know perspectives and views on things and I ask the questions because I think they help us to share our experiences and knowledge and Mm. and, and maybe hopefully inspire some people Mm. uh, to find their own answers right (laughs) to find out more about Rainier and his work you can head to summaequity.com and also follow him on linkedin And I truly appreciate if you share this important episode with your network and friends for impact. Thank you for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.